KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Compulsive Mice and Five Second Rule. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Tyler Cowan, who will discuss incentive economics. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Back to Brooklyn Rocks, I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty hungry, actually. <laughs> Pretty hungry? You didn't get enough uh, on Christmas yesterday? Must have been eggnog or something. It's just <laughs> That was a little bit too much for me. Well, you know, you always feel a little hungry after some eggnog. I'll tell you that. So speaking of food, do you think the five-second rule applies to Jell-O? <laughs> <laughs> five-second rule applies to everything in life, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> when to get out of a bad marriage... <laughs> When to change your socks. So uh, food contamination is pretty serious, and we can get it even from what we think are benign surfaces. Mm -hmm. An article in the Journal of Applied Microbiology shows that even if the surface is like wood or carpet, which suspect has been dry for a long time, up to 99% of the bacteria cells could transfer from the surface to whatever food had dropped onto it. And, of course, this depends on how a surface had been touched or disturbed in the recent time period. You know, even if you look at gummy bears or cookies that fell on tiles for five seconds, all of them became contaminated. And these include uh, bacteria such as E. coli and salmonella. So bad stuff, and even just five seconds is bad enough to get it to happen, huh? Yeah. Don't eat it or what? Make sure you wash it? lesson here is if you drop a piece of wood, pick it up as quickly as you can, and take a couple seconds to see if you think it's worth eating it or not. <laughs> okay. If you see it's all muddy and filled with slime mold, don't eat it. <laughs> if you want to learn more... In a recent issue of Journal of Applied Microbiology, Volume 102. Well, maybe you just might eat that uh, piece of toast if it's part of your obsessive-compulsive disorder. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger, right? <laughs> we can only hope. So researchers have found that one particular gene may actually be sufficient to induce obsessive-compulsive disorder. So does it somehow make your brain attached to some sort of behavior? Well, it's, it's not known what the neural mechanisms are, but it's this particular protein that they're able to knock out called SAPAP3, which seems to be involved in the responsiveness to glutamate, actually results in obsessive-compulsive disorder in mice, in particular in deficits to a part of the brain called the striatum. I see. And it's weird because they basically knocked out this gene and they saw that these mice were excessively grooming themselves and basically causing these rashes on their face. Huh. So are... why does God let this happen? <laughs> why does God need a starship? <laughs> Uh, these are questions that can't be answered, really, in life. <laughs> so this is an interesting work. It was actually done by neuroscientist Guoping Feng of Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and colleagues including Nicole Kalakos and William Wetzel. And it was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's Professor Tyler Cowan, who will discuss incentive economics. So stay tuned.
to the Grox Science Show. Well, life is full of constantly vexing problems, from should I walk out of this awful movie, to where's the best place for Chinese food? While many of us leave the solution to these issues to the winds of chance, it may be possible to use economics to help guide our decisions. Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Professor Tyler Cowan. Professor Cowan is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the Center for the Study of Public Choice. He is author of numerous academic and popular works on the subject, including a monthly column for the New York Times, regular pieces for marginalrevolution.com, and numerous books, including his latest work, Discover Your Inner Economist, Use Incentives to Fall in Love, Survive Your Next Meeting, and Motivate Your Dentist. Professor Cowan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's certainly a pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating and entertaining book. In the book, you actually argue that for most decisions, the key is finding the right incentives, and often the case, this isn't money. Often people are motivated by self-respect, or just the desire to have an enjoyable process in life. And if a business is trying to motivate its employees using only money, probably it will end up like Enron. So in part, my book is about economics, but taking into account the fact that people have emotions. Do you think that most businesses, they don't use the right incentives in their structuring? (laughs) Most businesses don't think about it very carefully. There's a long-run process. If they totally mess it up, they go out of business. But most places could do better. What what do you think is the key to finding the correct incentives for people? The key to finding the correct incentives is to look for cases where money and human values point in the same direction. That's how to do it in a business context. In a family context, it's often more that obligation, and you shouldn't use money at all. You shouldn't say, try to pay your husband or wife to lose weight. It's really more of an insult than anything else. And, of course, in the family setting, you you start out the book by a a very interesting story about trying to get your daughter to wash the dishes. That's right. We tried paying her, and it backfired because she ended up feeling we were going to control her and that if she would do this for money, we could pay her to do almost anything else, and she felt the need to rebel. That's an example of how you just can't buy and sell everything within a family. Uh, What do you feel are the most important dynamics within the family setting? I think just respect and a sense of obligation. And the best way to proceed is simply say you expect it to be done. And also to lead by example. Children most of all observe how a father and a mother treat each other, and they'll take their cues from that. I also discuss the idea of signaling, or what I call showing that you care. There are many decisions where a a wife will ask a husband to do something or, or vice versa, and the request doesn't necessarily make any sense, but it's important to do it just to show that you care. So the perennial debate about leaving the toilet seat up or down, for instance, or whether or not you should buy a product warranty. You can't approach these decisions without looking at human emotion. And often the best thing to do is simply show that you care. Trying to do the best you can and not always doing what otherwise might sound like economic sense. Think of buying a diamond ring as an engagement present. The whole point is that it's useless if you bought your wife a vacuum cleaner instead of a wedding ring. This would carry very little weight. It's the same principle. Uh, in the book, you, you talk about a number of these issues. One of the interesting ones, I thought, was how do you actually attract data in the first place? How do you use economic theory there? Well, this also goes back to signaling that women tend to size men up and usually reject them within 30 seconds of meeting them. So if a man is not able to send off the right signals, whether it be looks or charisma or charm, then he needs to work himself into a setting where women get to know him for longer. But often the biggest enemy when we're trying to find a mate is ourselves. 
a big theme in the book is what I call self-deception, and that is we think we know what we want when we really don't. So often people will think, well, my mate has to be tall or short or love dogs or love cats, whatever. But a lot of this is just illusion, and people should just be more open and not always think they know what they really want. Uh, you also argue against the adage of playing hard to get. Yeah, I don't think playing hard to get, taken alone, gets you very far. The key is really to get noticed in the first place. So playing hard to get is too easy. Uh, really the key is what are your effective signals and how will other people respond to those. I think that's a better way to think about the problem. Do you find that these types of decisions are made instinctively by a lot of people, or do people really have to tune in to the sort of incentives that people want? Well, I think too many of us are making these decisions just instinctively, and we have a natural protective tendency. We don't want to look too closely at what we're doing because we're afraid of finding out we might be wrong or doing the wrong thing. So we tend to blind ourselves, which gets us back to the self-deception idea so a lot of my advice is just telling people, look, don't afraid to be wrong. Look at what you're doing. Think about it. Apply some critical reason. How does one balance one's own incentives with, I guess, another person's incentive for a sort of a mutually beneficial outcome? Well, I think often in life the best economic advice is simply to be a nice guy and to be more humble. That the real power of human beings lies in their ability to cooperate. And you have to signal to other people that you are an effective cooperator and they should want to cooperate with you. So typically, just start off a relationship by unilaterally cooperating. And more often than not, you'll find reciprocation. One of the interesting uh, other stories that you talk about here is where to actually find the best food in a foreign country. Well, there's a fairly simple rule that also applies to cities you don't know so well, and that is look for competition, strength in numbers. Milton Friedman's idea that economic competition, it improves quality and lowers price. So if I'm in Chicago, I do know Chicago has a lot of Mexican restaurants. So if I don't know exactly where to go, a good rule is go to a Mexican restaurant. It's almost certainly pretty good. <laughs> and they have to compete against each other. If a Mexican place were not very good, it couldn't survive. But if I'm in Virginia, we have relatively few Mexicans, many more people from El Salvador. It's a better recipe to choose El Salvadoran food. But it's, again, the same idea. Look for competition. Hmm, I see. You also argue that uh, looking for economic disparities is an indicator. That's right. When there are a lot of poor people cooking for some number of rich people, the food tends to be very good. Poor people find cooking or opening restaurants as one good way of earning money and working their way up. It could be a way of reaching the American dream. So a country with a higher level of inequality will tend to have better food than a country where everyone's earning the same amount. You discuss uh, when might be the best point to actually walk out a movie that's really bad. Well, I think a good rule of thumb there is if you're even thinking of walking out of a movie, you should walk out. And it's what economists call opportunity cost. There's something else you could be doing with your time, and your money is already gone. The reason people don't walk out more is simply because they're afraid to feel like fools for having spent the money. But again, this idea of just applying a little more critical reason and getting to a better decision... It means you probably ought to go. So one's actually getting sort of negative utility out of the added time that one's spending in an awful movie. That's right. And I've been in many situations. I sit there, I'm wondering, should I go? Should I stay? And the times I've stayed, the movie doesn't really get better after a certain point. You simply need to know now's the time to go. If you want, walk into another movie in the same multiplex. Or demand a refund, perhaps. <laughs> well, you don't always get a refund. If it's just that you didn't like the movie. But at least get your time back. <laughs>
So really the problem is that people feel like they're too heavily invested in situations. So they, they That's right. Yeah. And we need to know when, is, when should we feel invested and when not. And when it's your wife, when it's your child, your best friend, yes, you should feel invested. When it's a movie, you shouldn't. You should just go. Related to this whole issue is when to end a meeting, which uh, for a lot of people can seem interminable. Well, a lot of meetings are too long. It's because people in the meeting, they talk too much. They eat up the time of others, and they don't care about this cost. A few simple recipes for making a meeting shorter. One is simply to ask everyone to stand. Mm. And others to hold the meeting over the telephone, even if you all work in the same office hall. People just get to the point more, the meeting's shorter. People save time. I don't find agendas useful in most cases, and people talk about what should be on the agenda. <laughs> uh, there are times when it, it, it can be important, but uh, overall agendas are overused. It's too much process and not enough results. Another one of the very interesting stories you have here is how to actually visit and view a piece of art in a museum. You know, say you go to the Art Institute in Chicago. Most people feel overwhelmed. There are literally thousands of pieces of art. Hundreds of them are truly great. And pretty quickly, people tend to turn off the art they're seeing. So I think a simple rule of just always bringing the art back to yourself. And each room you go to, just ask yourself, if I were in this room and I could steal one piece of art and bring it home, which one would it be? And when you relate it to yourself and what might be yours, people pay more attention, they process it better, uh, they stay more involved. So I think it's important not to let art become too forbidding and not to be overwhelmed or swamped by the experience of so many pictures. And sort of related to that is how does one try and attack a book that is a little too daunting or perhaps seems a little boring? I think often just start at the end is a good recipe. Yeah. Or if you don't like it, just put it down. Your biggest enemy is thinking that you're supposed to like it. And then when you don't like it at first, you feel guilty and you avoid the whole situation in the first place. Just getting rid of the idea, I'm supposed to like these wonderful, noble, classic books. Chuck it. <laughs> Find some you do like. Just read them. Read them how you want to. You know, there's a number of very interesting uh, examples in the book. Uh, are any of these uh, your particular favorite? Well, I like the food examples because food is very dear to my heart. Uh, how to choose a restaurant, how to order, why the best food tends to be in places that are hard to find. If ever I hear of a person describing a restaurant and they say, it was so hard to find, I got lost on my way there, I tend to think, that's a restaurant I want to go to. Because I know then it's not for tourists, it's not for casual visitors. It's really for regular customers who know the food is very good. Do you think there are any keys to uh, having more of an economic insight in terms of making decisions? Well, I think most people are afraid of economic insights. They think economics is about money. It's going to make them calculating untrustworthy being, a lot of income, but are not uh, very happy people. And what's important to do is to show that economics is really about the human emotions, and it's also for irrational people, and it's a way of having a rewarding life as well. I think most people are not, in fact, motivated by money. They're often motivated by status, or they're motivated just by the desire to have a good self-image of themselves. They want to feel they're doing the right thing. They want to minimize their sense of stress. They want to feel in control somehow. I'm curious, what do you think motivates you? I think curiosity motivates me. I think I take a great delight out of ordering my inner world and just listening to music or eating food or reading books. I'm fairly introverted. I think I'm very even-tempered. I think I can be happy on not too much money. That's how I view myself. Uh, where do you think a lot of people go wrong in terms of their decision-making? Do you think that they just sort of focus on the wrong things? or? Well, I think a huge problem is this notion of self-deception, that we're so committed to thinking we're better than average, 
And if any information comes along that might puncture that feeling, we have to throw out that information. So we don't think critically about a lot of problems. I think that's the most common mistake. But also over-investing in this feeling of control, that when other people impinge on our sense of control, we tend to resent them. And we ought to react often a little more calmly. And people hold grudges and have disagreements over what's really nothing at all. And very often it boils down to the sense of wanting to feel in control. So we're running slightly out of time, but maybe to give some distilled advice for people in terms of thinking economically. Well, I think some of the most fundamental economic advice is to recognize the value of humility, realize that most problems in life are complex. There won't be completely simple answers. Look for the importance of context. And also learn how to think like an economist. Discover your inner economist, as the title of the book indicates. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Again, the the book, Discover Your Inner Economist, uh, Use Incentives to Fall in Love, Survive Your Next Meeting, and Motivate Your Dentist. Professor Cowan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me on. And you were just listening to Professor Tyler Cowan discussing incentive economics. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, What Motivates Them? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know what motivates them and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Professor Cowan, you ready to play the game? I'm ready to play the game. All right, here we go. Person number one, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, I suspect, is motivated by the desire to think he is more able than other people and the desire to order his world and feel invulnerable. He seems to be doing a good, good job at that. <laughs> doing a fantastic job at it. Indeed, indeed, and very humanitarian as well. Yes, absolutely. And he didn't insist on controlling the money he gave away either. Right, right, so good for him then. Uh, number two is the uh, starlet Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan, I suspect, is pretty dysfunctional. I don't think she has a coherent account of her own motivation. She feels stress and she fears failure. And she tries to undercut everything by self-destroying herself before something else bad can happen. Yeah, and doing it publicly, too. <laughs> and doing it publicly. It's mm-hmm. a very sad story. Indeed. All right, number three is the famed economist Adam Smith. Adam Smith was a very quiet man. He wasn't social. I think he enjoyed writing. I know he enjoyed the friendship of his compatriot, David Hume, the philosopher. I think in an odd way, he wasn't very ambitious. He was someone who just wanted to put his ideas on paper. Hmm. Very conservative as a personality type. Indeed, certainly in his uh, theories as well. And he didn't marry, he didn't have children, he just wanted to do his own thing. It's a very interesting personality. Uh, Number four, the uh, home run slugger Barry Bonds. I think Barry Bonds is motivated by fame. He's had more than enough money for a long time. He probably doesn't know how to spend it. And he wanted to break that record, and thus there's the whole issue of what substances he may have taken. But I think just competitive desire, being on top of the other guy, and recognition. Well, it certainly got him notoriety, at least. Absolutely. All right, finally, number five is the President of the United States, George Bush. 
Bush is very hard to understand. I did meet him once, and I thought he came across as extremely bright in person, though he doesn't on TV. Uh, I think some time ago he closed up his mind because he was afraid of failure and making the wrong decision. And I think he's motivated by sticking to his guns and wants to feel that he's doing the right thing, even when he isn't. Well, he's certainly sticking to his guns, at least. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, Professor Callan, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game. Okay. The game was fun. All right. Well, thank you very much. And, okay. and of course, your book is, once again, it is Discover Your Inner Economist, Use Incentives to Fall in Love, Survive Your Next Meeting, and Motivate Your Destinies. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Lad, you're really wondering what picric acid is used for. You're coming over here and you're trying to start a big explosion. Well, that picric acid can be pretty explosive, very similar to TNT, but most usually in histology for getting great-looking sections. And Forrest here with this week's question of the week. What's tannic acid? Does it make me tan? If you know or think you know what tannic acid is, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your furniture might last a little longer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.